Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abul Samad. So we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, and with that in mind, we have some, some traffic-based topics to cover. <laughs> um, so we're, we'll start with what we're driving. We'll get to that in just a second. All right. So, Sam, what are you driving this weekend? Are you going over the river and through the woods? Uh, not planning to uh, attack any woods or rivers this weekend, <laughs> uh, but I did. I do have a Mazda CX-9 in the driveway, the, the brand new one, uh, which is, uh, I guess, uh, pr- pretty much the, the last of the Mazda lineup to get the complete makeover with their Kodo design language. Um, so the, the previous CX-9 was the last of the the cars that were developed under the Ford regime. Uh, and so the new, all new one uh, kind of takes the same kind of design language you've got on all the other current Mazdas uh, from the three, the six, the CX-5 with the, the more forward-leaning grill, five-pointed grill. Uh, and then it, it takes, it's got a, a little more uh, subdued variation on the, uh, the overall design language. Uh, you know, and the the rationale from from Mazda, as they explained it, uh, is that you know they're looking for a more looking for a more premium look uh, on that vehicle, and I think it definitely works. Um, it's you know it's it's still got you know some nice very nice lines on it. It's got great proportions um, and really nicely executed interior, just like we talked about uh, last time around with the Mazda three. You know, very well executed, not cluttered at all. Um, Everything is everything is right, pretty much right where you expect it to be. Um, just really well done overall. Uh, and I I took it. Um, I had to go down to uh, Ohio, uh, to Central Ohio the other day uh, for a, uh, an event at uh, Honda's East Liberty Assembly Plant. So drove it a couple hundred miles and was very impressed with it. You know, for for a big three row crossover, you know, it's maybe not quite as big as uh, say an Explorer or a Nissan Pathfinder. Uh, but it's it's very roomy inside and got 
surprisingly good fuel economy. You know, it's been averaging about 25 miles per gallon uh, through a variety of different driving conditions. So yeah, the Pathfinder, the Pathfinder doesn't get anywhere near. Well, I mean, the Pathfinder can do pretty well actually for its size, but the and the Explorer definitely doesn't get anywhere near that in terms of fuel economy. And and both yeah. of those, like both of those, drive like crap in my opinion. So how does the Mazda drive? Does it drive like a Mazda? Yeah, it drives like a Mazda. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you get a, a bigger, heavier vehicle like that. It's, you know, it's not going to be as nimble as, say, a three or or even a six or a CX-5. But um, it's it's remarkably composed. It's very quiet on the road, uh, very little wind noise. Um, just a, a really impressive vehicle overall. The one I've got is the, the signature model, which is the top trim level. It's got really nice leather interior. Um, you know, all the, all the features got adaptive cruise control and lane keeping the lane keeping system. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't do so much, you know, in terms of trying to keep you in the lane. You know, one of the things I do when I try these systems out, um, is when there's no one else around, I will kind of let it, uh, try to let it drift a little bit and see how it responds, uh, you know, to, uh, in order to see if it can really keep the, you know, if it's more of a lane um, centering system or just something that gives you alerts, and this is, you know, it'll it'll give you a little bit of a nudge back towards the middle of the lane if you hit the if it starts to drift out, uh, but it's more just about giving you the alerts. Uh, so, you know, and it, what it does is it vibrates the steering wheel, which is my preferred method. Uh, so it's not as annoying as the uh, the audible alerts. Uh, so it's it, other other than that, it works really well. Very impressive. Yeah, and in terms of price, like there, first of all, they they put a bunch of standard features on the the uh, CX nine. I know that you've got the sort of the highest trim level, but uh, you know even the standard one has like LED headlights and stuff. Um, what what's yours priced at? Uh, this one is pretty much maxed out at uh, about forty five thousand uh, sticker, and that's including the delivery charge. Uh, the base trim level, uh, front wheel drive, I think starts at a little over thirty one. Uh, which you know is it's right in the ballpark with most of the other vehicles in the segment. Um, you know, it's not it's not the cheapest, but it's it's not the not the most expensive either. So it's it's pretty comparable. And on the um, on this one, uh, the signature edition, it's got uh, Mazda's 2.5 liter uh, Skyactiv turbo. Uh, so it's about 250 horsepower. Um, this one's you know the the CX9 is about uh, about between three and 500 pounds lighter than an Explorer. Uh, so even though, you know, you can get the Explorer Sport with the 3.5 liter EcoBoost that has quite a bit more power and torque, uh, you know, overall performance, you know, this one's not going to accelerate quite as hard as the Explorer Sport, but um, it's got more than adequate performance for a vehicle of its size. Yeah, it was my other thought was that's, it's a big vehicle and 2.5 liter is a small engine. But then again, you know, we're starting to see that that shift toward forced induction four cylinders, you know, Volvo's doing it with the XC90 and pretty much all their range actually um, has that two liter that's either turbocharged or turbocharged and supercharged or, you know, paired with a hybrid drivetrain as well. So uh, it overall, it, it didn't feel like it ran out of breath. It felt like it was able to keep up with the, the weight and, and what you were asking it to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, never had any any issues with merging onto highways or things like that. Um, it, you know, it never it never seemed to be struggling. It's got it's got more than enough torque. You know, plenty of low end torque. It's it's responsive enough. Like I said, you know, it's compared to an Explorer Sport. 
you know, the, the sport's going to, you know, pull, you know, pull away from it in a drag race, but you know, who, who, who drag races these kind right. of things? Anyway. And the, the teenage kids that are out yeah. with mom's car. <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, if you've got a big boat that you need to tow or something like that, it's probably not going to have, you know, enough grunt, you know, to tow, you know, anything over about 2,500 to maybe 3000 pounds tops. Um, it's, it's probably going to run out of steam there. But, you know, as a as an average, you know, family commuter vehicle, uh, it's it's fine. You know, and like I said, it's been averaging about 25 miles per gallon, you know, a little closer to 20 in the city. Uh, so it, it's it's quite respectable. Yeah, that's pretty good, especially I still for- choose a minivan over this if I had young kids uh, just. But in, in general, you know, I would choose a minivan over an SUV of any kind. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's that's just me. That's you. I mean, there's that minivan stigma. And then and then there's also the fact that, you know, what do you think a minivan equipped that way would cost? Uh, let's see. The uh, the Pacifica I had a few weeks ago was in the same ballpark. So, you know, pricing, you know, it's not like you're going to save money going one way or the other. It's more just a matter of, of preference, uh, you know, design, you know, what type of what type of vehicle you prefer, uh, you know. For me, you know, like I said, you know, I remember what it was like, you know, loading yeah. kids into the car when they were young. Um, and, you know, the times when I got to drive minivans, it was far more convenient, you know, because they're lower to the ground. It's easier to reach in and get them buckled into booster seats and things like that. Um, you know, and especially with the big uh, sliding doors on the side of a minivan, it's just so much less hassle. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. You know that unfortunately, you know the market doesn't doesn't agree with you know with my logical assessment of the situation, and they prefer SUVs. So you know if you're going to go that direction, this is not a bad choice at all. Yeah, I mean, and and minivans, like yeah, nothing really beats a minivan. They're about the most efficient use of space. Uh, the whole, I mean, the whole side of the thing opens up, but uh, they've gotten expensive. And that was my my thinking was the last time I looked and, and priced it minivans out there's like wow these are these are priced like some premium vehicles and and that's that's fine because they they're equipped that way as well um but it, it just seems like like you said you know that the practical loses out to the the fashion conscious i guess to a certain degree um, yeah you know i mean there, there is one other factor in there as well you know is um you do sit a little bit higher in in a crossover or an suv and some people like that extra height although you know in a, in a minivan you do tend to sit more upright than you do in a car um so it's not like you're gaining a whole lot going from the minivan to an suv um but you, you do gain a little bit in terms of that height some people like to be able to see around of course if everybody's driving SUVs then you really don't have an advantage anymore but right you know, you know that's that's just what it is uh yeah. and, and so Mazda thinks they're gonna sell 50,000 of these things a year what, what do you think do you think that they're on track for that or is that really ambitious uh I think think it's probably a little ambitious i haven't I haven't actually looked at the uh the sales figures uh lately on that one um you know like compared to sales of you know the, the top sellers in the segment um like the explorer and and the um the highlander and and some of the other some of those other vehicles um you know fifty thousand is is a pretty modest goal uh, so i i think i think it's probably doable yeah, I mean, I, and I, it's funny, like, I, I realized when I asked the question, too, like, do you think that's ambitious? I mean, I don't think they're going to introduce a new car and be like, yeah, we totally just want to continue with our, like, mediocre results here. 
<laughs> I mean, the previous CX-9 was also getting pretty long in the tooth. I mean, it was around for you know, better, close to a decade. Yeah, I mean, it was an edge. About 2006 or seven. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was around for a long time, and you know, it was definitely looking pretty dated by the time it uh, by the time it finally came to market. You know, the funny thing about the the first CX-9 was that it always it felt different enough from the edge that it was just that much more satisfying. Uh, in, in some way, I'm not sure whether that was just sort of, uh, perception or, or reality. You know, I, I much preferred it to the edge, which is weird because it was really just a three row edge, but, um, yeah, I mean, this one seems poised to do just that much better in terms of being pleasing to drive. It's, it's, uh, it's an all new architecture. It, I mean, it does look fantastic and it's, it's outfitted yeah, nicely. It's, it's, it's definitely one of the best looking vehicles in the segment, you know, for midsize to larger, uh, crossovers, you know, this is a handsome looking vehicle. Uh, and especially in the, the dark gray color that this one is in, um, it's, it definitely looks good. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at the, uh, October sales report, uh, from Mazda and they sold, uh, 1800 of them in October, uh, which is up 24% from the year before. Yeah. I would expect that it's going to jump because it's a new model and they've, they've got right. something to push. And, you know, they've only, you know, they're, they're still ramping up. They've only been out for a few months now. So I think, you know, once people get a look at this thing, you know, they'll probably start to gain some more traction. So it, I think it's, it's definitely um, worthy of consideration against the, the competition um, just based on the way it looks and the way it's equipped and the way it drives. Um, you know, I, I think, People would be doing themselves a disservice if they don't give this car serious consideration. Yeah, well, I, Mazda overall, it looks like they're selling roughly a million vehicles in the U.S. per year, maybe um, something no. like that. No, uh, through October they sold about two hundred and fifty thousand. Okay, why am I looking at a? I'm looking at a sales and production results for September two thousand sixteen. I think right. that might be global. They've got domestic production, overseas production, and global production. So global production of passenger vehicles from January to September 2016 was 1.1 million. I don't know. Either way, they're up. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's that's that sounds about right. I think they're you know somewhere a little shy of one and a half million uh, sales globally, um, and about 250. You know, so far about 250 thousand through October uh, of this year in the U.S. Okay. All right. I'm clearly not interpreting the results that well. <laughs> um, or I'm just looking at the wrong chart. Anyway. Uh, You've got an SUV too. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, let's just move on so I can avoid further embarrassment. Um, I've got the Nissan Rogue Hybrid, which is, it's interesting. You know, I was, um, I was, I was curious to try it out because, you know, it seems like such a natural uh, place to, to create a hybrid. You know, it's, it's a hot segment that, that's sort of compact, or I guess, I don't know, is it compact or midsize? Yeah, that's, 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 no, that's considered a compact crossover, a compact SUV. It's kind of big for a crossover, like for a compact. Yeah, well, you know? I mean, everything keeps getting bigger and bigger, but um, it's, uh, in fact, it, it, the, the current Rogue is bigger than, the original Murano, which was a midsize. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. The Murano was always one of those vehicles that, that was very stylish. It was very comfortable. It was, it was the maxima of crossovers, you know, like uh, stylish, yeah. comfortable, completely uh, space inefficient, <laughs> much smaller inside than it looked. Well, you know, and the, and the thing about the Murano um, from some, some research I was doing recently, um, turns out that the Murano is not even classified as a, as an SUV. 
um, in uh, Nissan's lineup, like according to the EPA, you know, from their certification stuff, um, the Murano is actually classed as a midsize station wagon. Huh. Whereas the, the Rogue and the Pathfinder are classed as uh, small SUVs. That's so weird. The Murano is a terrible midsize station wagon. <laughs> it's a wonderful niche uh, crossover for sure, though. Uh, I always yeah. like the Murano. Um, and, you know, so getting back to the Rogue, actually, uh, for 2017, the hybrid is new. Um, and I, I like the Rogue and I like fuel economy, but this one just doesn't it doesn't feel fully baked. Uh, some of the choices are kind of strange. Um, the steering gets really heavy on the highway. Uh, and, I, you know, there's not a whole lot of feel in it. So it it was to the point where there's there's a long sweeping curve and, and part of my commute. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I got to I got to put some muscle into this. Not that I mind, you know, putting that kind of muscle into like a manual steering rack on something like a, a Lotus or something like that would be different. But this is this is just a regular crossover. Like it's this is a family car. It's not not supposed to be like that. That's kind of odd because the, the last time I had a Rogue about a, uh, about almost two years ago now, it, it didn't have that kind of behavior. So I wonder if it's something that they've done differently for, uh, you know, they just did a refresh for the 2017 models when they added the, uh, the hybrid as well. So I wonder if they've changed that steering uh, calibration quite a bit. I don't know. And, you know, I should say uh, I've only had it since uh, yesterday. So I haven't had a chance to sort of really fully play around with the um, all the settings. It may be that there's something there that's different drive modes like a sport mode versus a eco mode and a comfort mode uh, i think there's an eco mode i'm not sure uh, you know because it's also you know pretty highly equipped so we'll see i'll i'll take a look at it uh overall the power is good the, the integration of the the hybrid you know when it switches and, and stuff is it could be a little better a little smoother it's not terrible but it's not certainly not the class of the field um it does seem like this time around instead of licensing a toyota hybrid system Nissan has developed their own, uh, so they've got uh, you know two clutches between the electric motor and the uh, the engine. So it's it seems like the the way they've gotten around some of that torque split device stuff is they've developed their own way of of clutching both power trains or both power units to the transmission in some way. So it's interesting. I want to dig into the. Um, the details of it a little more. I'll have a little bit more to say about it in, in that sense next week. Um, but it's, it's decent to drive. Yeah. They, I think that they actually haven't licensed the Toyota system since the original Altima hybrid, uh, which was built from, I think about 2006 through about 2009. Um, ever, ever since then they, they actually have had their own hybrid. It, it's a, they use a similar architecture for both uh, their front wheel drive and also for the rear wheel drive infinity systems that they have on the, the Q the Q50 and the Q70. Okay. See, I thought those were distinct kind of different just because their architecture is so different. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the infinities are uh, rear wheel drive, but you know, it's a similar, it's a similar basic system um, with the electric motor sitting in between the engine and transmission and then a couple of clutches in there to decouple things and allow it to run on electricity. So I think that, you know, this is similar to what they previously had on the um, Pathfinder for the last few years. And they discontinued the Pathfinder hybrid. And that one, the Pathfinder hybrid um, didn't get very good uh, reviews because um, they, they actually used a surprisingly small battery on it. And uh, it actually didn't really provide a whole lot of benefit 
uh, in terms of fuel economy on that vehicle. So this time they went with a considerably larger battery. You know, it's like it's about one and a half kilowatt hours, like like most other hybrids. Um, so I was curious to see how it drives compared to the previous compared to what they did on the Pathfinder. Yeah, I, it's been so long since I had a Pathfinder hybrid. I couldn't tell you. I, I'm pretty sure I drove one of those. <laughs> I've driven Pathfinders. I'm not. I'm not enamored of the way even just the regular gas Pathfinder drives, um, as we covered earlier. <laughs> um, but you know, overall, the the Rogue has always driven pretty well. Even the the original Rogue, um, I liked the way it drove. So this generation is better than that, and this one in particular, it's it's not a bad vehicle to drive. Uh, so I'll crawl on it, you know, on top, below, throughout, and see what I can find out about it, and and I'll have more consistent. Um, driving feedback for for next time um but overall i think if you're looking in this segment it's kind of unique because it is a crossover of this size that is a hybrid but that's really its only sort of redeeming quality you're much better off with the gas model otherwise it's just a more pleasing overall vehicle yeah and you know one of one of the things that's unique about uh, nissan is most of their almost all of their front wheel drive vehicles now uh that the ones that don't have manual transmissions use uh, a CVT that they developed in-house, their Xtronic CVT. And most people really don't like CVTs. They don't like the way they drive very often. But Nissan has done a surprisingly good job in terms of calibrating their CVT to make it feel more natural, more more like a conventional transmission. You know, they program it um, with um, discrete ratio steps uh, so that it behaves the way people um, – traditionally expect a transmission to behave or the combination of the engine and transmission. So you, they're avoiding what, uh, what's like, the, what they call the motor boating effect. Right. You know, when you, when you drive a boat on the, on the water, you know, you rev up the, uh, the engine and the engine runs fairly constantly while the boat accelerates up to speed. Um, and with most CVTs, you know, the way they're, the way they're programmed, the way they're calibrated, um, the CVT is calibrated to get you, uh, get the engine up to, either to its uh, peak torque for maximum acceleration or to keep it at its peak uh, efficiency speed and then just vary the, the ratio, continuously vary the ratio between the engine and the wheels to keep that engine speed constant for maximum efficiency or maximum torque. Um, and, you know, most most consumers really don't like the way that feels, and I, I don't blame them. I, I don't like the way it sounds. It just sounds unnatural. Well, it feels like the clutch is slipping, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got this, you've got this constant drone, you know, there's constant sound from the engine even as the car accelerates. And, you know, I, I think, you know, over time people might get accustomed to it, but it just, it just doesn't, doesn't sound right. Um, and so Nissan calibrates theirs a little differently. So, um, you know, it uses smaller steps, but it behaves more like a conventional transmission, a step a step ratio transmission. Yeah, and I, I did notice that yesterday, um, accelerating you know up an on ramp, it would it it would rev up to you know redline. It would go to six thousand, then it would drop back again, and it did that several times. So uh, I was sort of like, oh, I guess they want you to feel like it's got discrete steps in it. Um, yeah, like, like an and that's exactly what they're doing. Um, I mean, is there actually any other benefit other than psychological there? I think actually that it would. It would make for a quicker acceleration time if it didn't do that. Um, it could, you know. It, I think you know. It depends on the ratios they're using. I mean, what what they do is they they tend to keep it, you know, within a a fairly narrow band uh, of 
engine speeds. So it's it's a narrower band of speeds than what you would get um, with a typical um, step ratio transmission. Uh, but it, it's just enough enough variability in the engine speed sound uh, that it sounds more natural. So you get you get the the best kind of the best of both worlds is what they're trying to achieve: the maximum efficiency or acceleration, as well as you know uh, a more pleasing experience when you drive it. Yeah, so it just kind of notches the ratio up a little bit, almost like a close ratio uh, manual, you know, where where you just you sit there between you know the beginning and end of of peak torque, um, you know, on that bell curve like the dyno plot, you know. So it just sort of goes back and forth. So each shift puts you, you know, right back down in the meat of the power band. You climb out of it, right back down, climb out of it again. So I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting way of of doing it for sure. Um, so we'll have more to say. <laughs> Next time around, um, and to, to to hearing your thoughts on on the hybrid system in that next time. Yeah, and so today, since it's the first, uh, since the last day before Thanksgiving of 2016, uh, you know, traffic comes to mind, and so a topic that's really sort of dear to everybody's mind right now is let the damn car drive itself. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, and you actually just posted something on the Navigate blog about uh, GM Super Cruise. And, you know, we know when it's coming, which is not as soon as it was promised. Uh, but, you know, just today, there's also been renewed chatter about uh, requiring automakers to put an airplane like airplane mode like function to lock out phones while they're in the cars. And, um, you know, GM has assumed drivers using Super Cruise are going to get distracted because, I mean, let's face it, you you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, based on the experience we've seen with other other brands, uh, most notably Tesla, um, but you know, with, with with any brand you know that has started to deploy these semi-autonomous systems, you know, these more advanced uh, driver assist systems that control multiple functions at one time, uh, you know, drivers do get distracted. You know, they they don't continue to pay attention, and so realizing that GM, you know, de- decided to delay super, the launch of Super Cruise a bit. Um, and do some extra things in there uh, to try to make sure that, you know, to try and ensure the safety of the system. And, you know, only time will tell how effective it is. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that uh, I already learned about several months ago from some discussions with GM uh, is that <clears throat> they'll, they will, um, they'll have a, a more aggressive driver monitoring system in the vehicle. So when you use Super Cruise, um, Super Cruise is what's known as a level two autonomous system. So the Society of Automotive Engineers has these different levels of automation that that have been defined. And pretty much everybody is is now using the SAE definitions for automation. So level zero is a a vehicle that has no automation. You know, you do all the driving manually. Uh, Level one is systems like what we typically have on the road today with you know, where you've got adaptive cruise control that, you know, maintains the speed and maintains the distance to the car ahead of you, or you have lane keeping systems uh, that try to keep you from drifting out of the lane. But these, these, each of these functions function individually, independently of each other. Um, when you get to level two, you're talking now about systems that can control multiple functions. So it can control steering and acceleration and braking. So that's what Tesla Autopilot does. Uh, Volvo's uh, pilot assist system does that. Um, Mercedes-Benz has their drive pilot. So all, all of these systems, you know, function in a, in a similar manner, not necessarily all to the same degree of, of capability. You know, some, some are better than others. And I think it's generally agreed that Tesla's autopilot 
uh, of the systems that are on the market today is probably the best uh, in terms of providing smooth smooth functionality. Uh, but it's still not it's still far from perfect, and it's by no means a, a fully autonomous vehicle by any stretch. So um, Super Cruise is is going to be similar to that, and it will allow drivers to do uh, you know to do fully hands off operation. So you won't have to keep your hands on the wheel when you're using Super Cruise. Um, but uh, in exchange for that, what GM is do they've, GM's done a couple of things. They've got they geofence the system. Um, so basically, before you can enable Super Cruise, it checks where you are on the map to make sure that you're only on limited access highways. So you can't use Super Cruise in the city, you know, where you're going to be hitting intersections and you know, um, the system is not capable of, of handling those kinds of situations. Um, so, you know, basically highway driving is where the only place where it can work. And then um, they're also putting driver monitoring in there. Uh, and they haven't given details on exactly how they're going to be monitoring the driver, but they'll be keeping an eye on the driver to make sure that they're still watching the road and ready to take over if the Super Cruise um, is not able to uh, continue operating. And if the system determines that the driver um, can't or is, isn't paying attention, then it will actually slow down the vehicle and bring it to a safe stop at the side of the road uh, if the driver doesn't respond to the alerts to, to stay attentive. And then the most recent thing that I learned last week at the LA Auto Show uh, was that they're also putting, starting to put in some of the redundancy that's going to have to be part of fully autonomous vehicles when we get to that point. And so one of, uh, one of the features that they've got in there on uh, the CT6 that's available that you can buy now, uh, on the um, active chassis package, one of the features they have in there is rear wheel steering uh, that gives you, you know, uh, gives you more more aggressive steering at low speeds for easier maneuver maneuvering in parking lots, and then uh, increases the stability at higher speeds on the highway. And what they're what they're doing is uh, that system will be included as part of the Super Cruise package, so that if you have a any kind of failure in the in the main front steering system, whether it's the electric assist motor or a steering gear uh, malfunction or or anything like that, um, the rear wheel steering will be able to um, come in and actually help to steer the vehicle to a safe stop at the side of the road. Yeah, so overall, it seems like GM has really picked up the ball and run with it in terms of making a system that's very well thought out and very well engineered to, I don't want to say protect us from ourselves, but just really think of those uh, contingencies and, and put in place ways for the system to adapt to the, the human variable, you know, the, the unpredictability of humans and, and not just give us all the control and be like, here it is, you know, use it and be responsible, uh, nod, nod, nudge, wink, wink, and, and off we go. Like they've, they're putting considerable effort into making this system something that can cope with people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to see the same thing happening from all the other manufacturers going forward as well. Uh, you know, they're going to be factoring it, you know, take, taking into account the human factor and all of this stuff. Um, and and with um, you know, I mean, GM you know is certainly in the last few years they've gotten burned on some safety issues. Um, you know, certainly the the whole ignition switch uh, debacle of a couple of years ago, uh, and you know, there's been various other issues that have come up. And under uh, under Mary Barra's leadership as CEO, uh, you know, she has she and and uh, Mark Royce, who's in charge of uh, product development, 
have definitely taken a more aggressive stance on making sure that they address safety issues, you know, or at least, you know, trying to address the safety issues before the cars go into production. Uh, so, you know, we'll, only time will tell, you know, how effective that is. But there's, they certainly seem to be doing the right things going forward. And, you know, they they do ultimately want to get to fully autonomous driving. And they, you know, I think every, they and, and everyone else, you know, increasingly understand that, you know, before we get there, you know, the, with these interim steps, we've got to make sure that we do these interim automation systems um, correctly, you know, and do them safely so that we don't destroy consumer confidence in the technology before we get to the point where we can do fully autonomous systems. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that go on there too. I mean, I think that GM has the challenge of consumer confidence in GM, not not right. just the consumer confidence in the technology. I think that it has a lot more cachet when it's the Tesla system, whether or not it has the, the proper safeguards in place versus you know GM. Although GM has the, the budgetary might uh, to really come to market with a much more fully realized system. GM also has those management issues that have created a culture or in the past, they created a culture of, you know, ass covering. Right. I mean, like I said, they, you know, they have, they have made some serious mistakes in the past and they're trying to, you know, at, at least, you know, from, from the leadership level at the company, they are, you know, making a serious effort, to try not to repeat those mistakes. Yeah, I mean, and because to me, looking on the outside a little bit, the mistakes weren't weren't the engineering. Like GM has world class engineering. Uh, the the issues were the actions that maybe some of those engineering staff folks took because of management. You know, it's like two different behaviors. You know, the engineering is solid, and then you know there was a move that was made. Like I'm thinking of the ignition switch thing in particular. Like, you know, they they backed off some of the the rigor of that spec to solve a problem in a way that didn't get anybody in trouble, you know? And, and it, so like, you got to solve that. So solve that, like people being afraid from their jobs, covering stuff up. Um, but like we're, we're, I'm, I'm taking the podcast in the wrong direction. So we'll come back. <laughs> um, Cause I really do believe that, that GM is, is invested in making this stuff work. I mean, I, I'm sure that they like Ford and like other automakers see this is the future of, the industry, whether we like it or not, that we, we need to have solutions ready for this and have thought of it. And uh, however the technology gets a, adopted, we need to be able to to be that much further down the road. Um, where do you think, though, GM bringing sort of its, its, its full wherewithal to it leaves somebody like Tesla that's been very disruptive and they have a good system right now, but, you know, where, where does GM fully getting in the game put them? You know, I, I think, um, you know, one of the advantages that Tesla has is that they are able to respond very quickly um, when issues do come up. You know, they, they have over-the-air update capability that they've done, and they've used that to uh, provide functional and, and safety updates to their vehicles that are in the field. So that's that's certainly a big advantage they have. Um, and, the, you know, they, they have the ability and willingness to move quickly, you know, when problems are recognized. So that's a good thing. Um, I think, you know, where, where probably what they, I mean, what personally what I would like to see them do is maybe um, slow down just a little bit in terms of deploying some of the technologies to customers, um, you know, to make sure that they're trying to do a little more testing in-house before they, before they let their customers become beta testers of the technology. Because I, you know, I frankly have never really thought that that was a good idea, you know, to 
to, especially for safety critical technologies like this, you know, it's one thing to let your customers be beta testers for infotainment systems, which we'll talk a bit more about in a few minutes. But uh, for safety critical systems, I I have never believed that that was a wise idea. Um, so I'd like to see them, you know, maybe you know do more testing in house before they deliver it to customers, uh, and then you know kind of think out, you know, spend more time working on these edge cases um, and make sure that they get the edge cases resolved uh, and, ha and have contingencies in place to deal with that before they ship the product. Yeah, I wonder if that's, uh, I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that it's it's sort of like the, the software development mindset, you know, Tesla's sort of born out of that realm um, where it's design, ship, test. Um, and yeah. You know that the whole idea of you know shipping a minimally viable product, right? Yeah, you know, and I I have no issue with that in principle. I think the 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 problem is defining what is minimally viable for a software, you know, for you know a, a mobile phone application versus what's the minimal minimal level of viability for a car, especially well, for the safety critical system on a car. Yeah, and you know even being an end user for some of that stuff, you know, I've used Avid stuff for a long time. I've used Adobe stuff for a long time and they're, they're in good places now, but there were definitely years and, and just several year periods where the things were just, you know, they were full of bugs. They weren't reliable. Um, and, and the model was, you know, the answer you'd get was like, well, that's kind of a rare problem. Like, I don't care if it's a rare problem. It's what I'm doing and it's how I need it's, to work. It's so the, it's, it's the problem I'm having today. You know, right. Trying to, trying to do the job, you know, where I make my living. Right. You know, if it doesn't work, then I, you know, I don't get paid. Right. I switch platforms. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the way that happens. And so like, you don't have that luxury when you've invested in a car, you can't, you can't switch platforms while you're driving. <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, the, the other thing is, yeah, as I said, there, there's a, a difference between, you know, a, a product that you're using, you know, for video editing right. or, or whatever it might be a you know, software product, you know, if it crashes, it's not going to kill you. Um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna annoy you, and you know, it might cause you cause you a lot of headaches, but it's not gonna kill you. Right. You know, a car is a completely different animal, and it can kill you and kill others around you. You know, kill innocent bystanders. So you know, you need to keep that in mind before you ship this kind of stuff. Um, and you know, that goes for every manufacturer. Um, and as we get into more, you know, higher levels of automation on these vehicles. We really need to keep that, you know, focus on that uh, before we ship products. I just want them to be able to detect my um, my level zero car and stay the hell away from it. <laughs> that's Vic. yeah, that's exactly what I want. You know, the Crown Vic I can understand. I can bolt stuff to that to make it improved. Um, I don't need to add software. Well, I really sound like a luddite right now, and I'm I'm not. Uh, so anyway. Let's let's stay on the software tip. Um, let's talk about infotainment a little bit because last week, uh, and it dovetails nicely with this the autonomy conversation. Um, you know, my thought last week was the lower end of infotainment. You know, automakers would be wise to cede that to you know Android uh, Auto or Apple CarPlay um, because it just costs so much to develop those systems. And you had a, a different take on that, and for different reasons. So. Um, you know, you, you said you wanted to talk more about it and, uh, talk more about it on this episode. So let's, let's jump to that. Yeah. So, um, you know, infotainment, you know, has been for, at least for the last decade has been a, a real problem for manufacturers. Um, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, car makers, you know, when they, when they sell a car, 
they want to have their own unique user experience, you know. So when you buy a Ford or you buy a Mercedes-Benz or you buy a Honda, you know, the manufacturers, you know, when you get in that car, they want you to know this is what you're driving. You're not you're not driving a Google product or an Apple product. You're driving a Honda or uh, a BMW or whatever it might be. So they, they all want to have their own unique look and feel to their vehicles. And, you know, that as, as we've as we've gone from, you know, old school AM FM radios and CD players and tape decks in the case of probably your Crown Vic uh, <laughs> to to, you know, more modern systems um, that, you know, include telematics and navigation and and the ability to interface with your your uh, mobile devices. Uh, you know, we've seen that, you know, these are companies that are, um, how shall we say, um, not very well uh, experienced with, with doing um, software uh, user interfaces. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to, to put it on, honestly, you know, put it bluntly, you know, most, in fact, almost all manufacturers have done a pretty poor job in terms of designing their user interfaces and developing the, the user experience. You know, and those are kind of two different but related things. You know, us, user interfaces, you know, the visual aspect of what you see and interact with um, in a system, you know, whether it's a, an infotainment system in a car or your phone or your computer or whatever. And then the user experience is kind of a, a superset of that, you know, how reliable is it? How fast, how responsive is it? You know, so there's, there's the look and there's a look and feel part of it. And then, you know, going beyond that, you know, how, how well does it behave, you know, and a classic example of, um, you know, where both user experience and user interface kind of fell flat was, you know, when Ford introduced my Ford touch in 2010, um, you know, their, their second generation of their sync system, um, they they had a lot of issues with it. You know, the system was underpowered. The software was not very reliable. It crashed a lot. Um, you know, the and the and the UI, the user interface, was not very good either. You know, it had small touch targets that were hard to hit. You know, when you're driving. Um, you know, and they've learned from that. Uh, you know, their their latest Sync Generation Three is vastly improved. It's much. You know, it's got a much better UI that's easier to use. And then the hardware that it runs on is also a lot better. It's 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 faster, uh, you know, better performing and more responsive. So you know they they've done they've done all the right things. But you know the key there is still that you know they want to have their own unique look and feel. That you know you get into it and say, oh yeah, okay, I'm driving a Ford. And so for that, you know, they, they some manufacturers have been reluctant to adopt um, the Apple CarPlay and Android Auto systems that those two companies have developed that that give you a common interface um, that is tied to whichever phone platform you're using and looks the same you know in every different vehicle manufacturer so manufacturers you know don't want to do that because they they don't want to lose that control but at the same time users like having that consistent experience with the phone that they use all the time so you know you've got this this um, two things at, at odds with each other. And, you know, some manufacturers like Toyota have said that they're not going to use, they're not going to adopt Android auto or CarPlay. Uh, well, that's, that's, I mean, with their own system. That's unfortunate because instead of getting in the car and going, Oh yeah, great. I'm in a Ford product because, you know, the system is familiar and easy to use, or I'm in a Toyota because, you know, I like the system. You groan. You're like, Oh crap. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in a Toyota. Like Toyota's system is not good. Um, it's only marginally passable in my opinion. And, and tune is just not, not where it's at. Um, and by 
integrate they're 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 sort of being arrogant to a certain degree i think like don't try to reinvent the wheel like you all use round wheels with black tires <laughs> you know like because they work uh you you might want to consider that consistent like the easier you make it for uh a user to interact with your car the the better off you are the the you know the more they're going to focus on the other aspects of the experience that are really nice the materials the design the seat comfort um versus the like goddamn frustrating <laughs> infotainment system you know like, I, you know I, I i don't disagree with you at all on on any of what you just said um but and you know i mean I, i've had the opportunity to, to try out both carplay and android auto and and uh vehicles from a number of different manufacturers now over the last uh, year and a half or so, and even even an aftermarket system uh, from Pioneer. And in general, I, do, I very much like uh, those systems, particularly Android Auto. I, I prefer that over CarPlay, but, you know, I'm also an Android user. Um, but I think you know what? One thing I've come to realize over the last year or so as well. You know, wh well, first of all, one of the things that um, makes those systems superior to the built-in uh, infotainment systems is the fact that they're cloud-connected. You know, so their um, their voice recognition systems are much better than yeah. the embedded systems because they have the capability to. You know, for for an embedded system that's built into the car, you have very limited processing power, um, very limited storage. Um, you know, for a number of reasons, for cost and and you know um, and because you know these systems are often you know uh, they take several years to develop, and so they don't get updated as frequently. Uh, so you know, when you use voice recognition that's built into the car, it tends to have a very limited vocabulary because what they're trying to do is by keeping the the number of words that it's trying to recognize more limited. Um, they can increase the probability that it will recognize those words consistently in the in the car environment because the, the car environment when you're driving it's a tough environment for something like that to work in because you've got a lot of ambient noise and everything uh, and so it's it's hard for voice recognition to work in that under the best of circumstances uh, so you know the the combination of limited processing power and the bad environment means that they they'll use these limited vocabularies. When you use your phone, um, you know because it can send whatever your voice request was up to the cloud to do the recognition. It can do uh, much more reliable recognition and get closer to natural language recognition. Right. Um, but of course, that also depends on you having a connection to the cloud. And you know, as I experienced this week when I drove to Central Ohio, um, that's far from guaranteed. Um, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, it, it seems like you know. Um, all the, all the cell phone companies have pretty much ignored, you know, Central Ohio uh, as far as providing coverage. You know, and in a in a large swath of that area, uh, I, I was getting zero bars, and you know, and I, I use T-Mobile. I was getting zero bars, but somebody else that I was that I was there with had Verizon, which is generally considered to be the best. They also had zero bars. So it's it's not it's not just one company. It's, there's a lot there's large parts of the country where you can't get a you can't get a cell connection. So um, you you need to have at least some degree you know in order in order for us to use a lot of these capabilities that we want to have in cars, at least some portion of that needs to be built into the car. Um, you can't rely on having a connection. And then you know as we go forward as we get into uh, all the automation systems. Uh, those systems are also going to require, um, you know, to, in order for a car to navigate itself from one place to another, 
it needs to have the map data built into the car. You can't rely on having a cloud connection to Google Maps or Apple Maps. Um, you know, and especially, you know, someday when we get to the point where we've got autonomous on-demand taxis running around cities, uh, you, uh, those, ve you know, those vehicles are not necessarily going to have a phone built in. They need to have uh, built-in maps. So some of the, the functionalities, you know, some of the really cool functionality you get out of Android Auto and CarPlay today, like Google Maps or Apple Maps uh, and the, the media streaming, you know, right now we can only get those by using those systems uh, but eventually those maps are going to have to be embedded in the vehicles anyway. Wait, wait uh, embedded, like, my my Jeep has the map data, like, I download the map data into the system, and it has, you know, 10 gig worth of storage. Is that what you mean, or is it something something different? Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the starting point. So you, you need to have a, a base level set of maps that are present in the vehicle all the time, so it can't rely on being able to load live maps from, from Google, from Google's servers, you know, it has to have a certain minimum level as a start, as a starting point. So, you know, if you're going to summon your car to come and get you, you know, it can use its, its uh, sensors to look at what's around it in real time. But, you know, without the map data in the car, how, how's it going to know where to go? Yeah. It, it needs to know, it needs the maps built in in order to be able to get from one place to another to, to pick you up. Yeah, no, I get that. I, that makes sense. Um, I didn't realize that was still kind of a an issue. I thought they had solved that with just like put a put a hard drive in there and and. Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, and that that's 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 what they're going to do. So, I mean, you know, what we're going to see, you know, in, over the next five to ten years, you know, um, pretty much all, we'll probably see pretty much all cars equipped with navigation built in, and and also the navigation systems are getting more sophisticated as well. You know, um, you know, it you, you know. It's not, you know, you, we started off with basically just flat 2D maps, you know, akin to what we used to have with paper maps, you know, that they were just digitized. Which is still the way I switch the displays. <laughs> I don't like the ones that show me the horizon in 3D, like, no, I can't see far well, enough. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a UI issue, and you're, you know, you can, you can set that any way you want. But the other thing that we're starting to see now is um, they're starting to put 3D maps in cars with topographical data. So now... Um, the map has information about when you're climbing a grade, when you're climbing a hill, and when you're going downhill and where the crest of the hill is. And so you've got companies like Mercedes-Benz was the first to do it um, on the S-Class plug-in hybrid. And now Hyundai is doing it on, the, uh, on their new Ionic, on their uh, hybrid and, and uh, plug-in hybrid and battery electric cars, um, where they're, they're doing what's, what's known as predictive navigation. So um, they're actually using the navigation data as an input to the powertrain control. So yeah. As you as you climb a hill, you know, um, in the past, you know, um, with a with, say with a Prius, for example, as you're climbing a hill, you know, if you want to maintain speed going up that hill, you know, as the battery gets down to a certain level, uh, it's going to have to turn the engine on in order to maintain your speed going up the hill. But if it if you have that navigation data as an input into your powertrain control, and it knows, okay, I'm only a couple of hundred meters from the the crest of this hill. And if I just run down the battery a little bit further, I can stay on battery, keep the engine off, or keep a couple of cylinders deactivated. And then, you know, I know I'm going to be hitting the crest of that hill and going downhill after that, and then I can recover it. So I can drain the battery a little bit lower than I normally would uh, because I know I'm going to get that energy back on the other side of the hill. So it can improve your fuel efficiency. And so, you know, they're starting to do things like that and do things like eco-routing. Uh, so all these things are being – you're, you're going to have uh, – you're going to have to have the maps built in. So you're, 
um, the the need for something like uh, Android Auto or CarPlay is going to become less going forward. Yeah, although you know, it, it just makes me it makes me wonder, like, how do we get to a point where, like, deciding what goes in the system and what is is cloud based too? Because it seems like you know. It, one of the big things about OnStar that was cool was that, you know, because the antenna is mounted on the roof, you get gain that way because you don't have this giant attenuator that you're holding the phone to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is your your human head. <laughs> um, you know, so you get, you know, double or triple the power, which is, you know, 6 to 9 dB of gain uh, back out of that antenna. So maybe if the cars are using a cloud connection, because that's coming, um, you know, do we have to actually embed all that stuff or is it, you know, embed what it needs. And then, uh, as it, as it goes through its day, it can pull what it needs out of the cloud and we can have a reliable, solid cloud connection. I mean, I guess that there's, there are pockets where you're just not going to have any coverage. And then how do we build the cars so that they can fall back to not having that, uh, that connection? Like think of your laptop, right? If your laptop loses Wi-Fi, it's pretty much a useless box. Like you don't want your car to get that way. Well, I mean, it, yes and no, right? Like most of the things that people do on their laptop, if you're not in, in some kind of word document or, you know, deep in some application, you, you lose some functionality. Um, we, we want to make sure that our cars don't get to that point, I guess, where we're relying on stuff that's not always going to be there. And and what do we do? What are we doing to drivers? Like, I feel like, you know, just the same as that, that conversation about the cruise control systems where we're we're relying on it. Um, you, we're going to train a whole generation of drivers to let the car do it. Um, just like now, we have a whole generation, two generations, really, that can't drive manual. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, to to the first part of your question. Yeah, sorry, I rambled. There, there need, there's there's going to need to be a you know a certain level of functionality that is built into the car that doesn't rely on a, on connectivity. You know, so you're going to have base level of maps. You're going to have a certain base level of voice recognition and, and you know, all the other functions that can operate even when you don't have a cloud connection. That's that's going to have to be there on, on every car going forward, and it will be. Um, and then, you know, uh, that will be augmented by cloud connections. So, you know, companies like Nuance, Nuance is, you know, probably the the global leader in voice recognition systems. You Boston know. represent? Sorry. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, they... Um, pretty much almost every manufacturer that has, excuse me, voice recognition in their cars, you know, uses technology from nuance. You know, it's, it's there in almost every car today. Um, you know, they, well, I mean, nuance over the years, you know, they gobbled up all the other companies that were doing, right. They were, they were dragon and, uh, yeah, Yeah, they bought a bunch of, a bunch of companies that all got absorbed into nuance. So, yeah, and and I've seen demos from Nuance. You know, so they they've got the built-in systems that rely, you know, that work on you know the minimal hardware functionality that's in the vehicles, and then they've also got, you know, they're they've got um, cloud-based systems, co- connected systems that they're building on top of that now, so that you can have, um, you know, you can have digital assistants, you know, things like Google Now and Siri, you know, that are part of this. So, you know, it'll it'll provide certain functionality in the vehicle even when you don't have a connection. And when you're in a place where you do have a connection, it, it provides enhanced functionality. It'll provide something more like natural language, um, natural language voice recognition. Uh, instead of having to remember specific commands, you can just say, you know, uh, make a reservation for me at uh, Grange Kitchen and Bar for 7 o'clock tonight for 2, you know, um, and it'll it'll do it. 
So those sorts of things uh, are coming, you know, in the next year or two. And they'll, you know, because because the vehicles are connected, it'll be able to provide uh, updates to the functionality over time, you know, as they make their algorithms more efficient. The built the part that's built into the car will also get better over time um, and have more capability. Okay, so that's the first part of it. Now, what do we do about drivers who can't drive when the system loses its mind? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of them can't really drive today anyway. That's true. Well, that's true. And uh, and unfortunately, <laughs> that's that's not likely to that's that's a situation that's not likely to get better anytime soon. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any real, uh, especially here in the U.S., there doesn't seem to be any real effort uh, or desire to provide better driver training. Uh, so you know that. I think, and that's you know, kind of why why everybody's pushing so hard to move towards autonomy, um, so that we don't have to deal with that problem. Yeah, well, technological solution to a human problem. Yeah. Um, it, what was interesting to me was Jeff Sabatini, uh, another former Autoblog colleague. Uh, he wrote something for uh, Car and Driver about how you know the argument, and this has been my argument, was that uh, you know better driver training makes better drivers, and and he was saying uh, not he whatever research he did. Uh, said, you know, not, not necessarily actually. Um, and maybe, maybe that's true. Uh, I just have a, I guess I have a hard time believing that, that better driver training doesn't create better drivers. I, I don't think it can hurt. Yeah. Um, well, actually, well, I shouldn't say it's not right. Cause that, that's true. Like you get, it actually, it, it, it can hurt, um, in some circumstances, you know, where, you know, if you've given drivers training, uh, better training, you know, sometimes they can become overconfident and, you know, get themselves into situations, drive, you know, too deep into a corner and get themselves into situations where they might have otherwise, you know, been a little more cautious or driven a little slower. And, you know, even if they crashed, you know, maybe the, the consequences wouldn't have been as severe. And so now, you know, as you get more and more, um, you know, as, as people get trained better, um, you know, they start to become overconfident and get themselves into situations that they might have previously avoided. Yeah, and I don't know what the solution for that is, or even if there is a solution beyond experience. Like, you know, when when you learn to ride a bike, right, you just have to fall off. It's kind of the same thing, you know. When you when you are learning to become a better driver, you just have to make mistakes. And and you know, our systems and cars right now are pretty good about you know saving us from our mistakes uh, to a, a large degree. Um, you know, our, the amount of miles we drive right now is just crazy. Uh, it's trillions yeah, of miles. Yeah. Last year, uh, it was over 3.2 trillion miles in the U.S. Yeah. And so the amount of accidents, well, 30,000 accidents a year, 30 to 40,000 fatal accidents a year is yeah. like, that's, that's a lot, but statistically it's very little as a matter of fact. Um, it's still 30, 40,000 people we'd like to still keep around at, at yeah, least, it, you, know, you know, some it, of them. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just over one fatality for every hundred million miles of driving. Right. So imagine that. I mean, in your lifetime, you're never going to drive anywhere close to 100 million miles, so, uh, unless you happen to be a long haul trucker, you know, working for 50 years. But you know, more than likely, you will never come anywhere close to 100 million miles of driving in your entire lifetime. And you know, that's that's the probability that you will die in a car crash. Right. I think you probably could win the lottery better than that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's this is not something we're going to solve on the, the podcast. So we should we should move on. But it's just you know. Uh, infotainment systems are going to get better. 
<laughs> and and they're, they're going to be better in a couple of different ways. I expect in the short term, we're going to see more adoption of the let the phone, you know, power a lot of that because it has a pretty powerful processor and, and really, you know, we're not tying it into all the sensors and systems and, and it should be okay. Um, in the longer term and for higher end stuff, I'm, I'm expecting, like you say, you know, a lot more sophistication um, and, yeah. and deeper integration. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll still be using, you know, phones for connectivity for a variety of purposes, you know, for a while, for a long time to come. But, you know, increasingly the things that we're getting out of CarPlay and Android Auto um, are going to be built into the car. And so, you know, we're, we're going to have to fall back on what the manufacturers provide us for an interface. But, you know, on the plus side, they, they do seem to be getting better at that. You know, Mazda does a pretty good job. Ford's latest stuff is pretty good. Uh, GM's getting better at it. Every, you know, everybody everybody is to a large degree getting better at it. Yeah. So we'll just hold our breath and and keep uh, praying for that one that's just like thinking, right? Just just operates so intuitively. Um, All right. So yeah, uh, we, we we got we got a couple of emails. Right. I was just gonna say we got some we got some questions. We got some feedback. I like feedback. Feedback is good. Yeah, and uh, if you have any questions that uh, you'd like Dan and I to discuss, uh, you can uh, reach us. There's a contact form on the website at wheelbearings.media, uh, and or you can also uh, just email us directly at uh, uh, wheelbearingscast at gmail.com. And the first one we've got uh, is from James Becker, and uh, he's asking about uh, visibility. Uh, you know, looking at cars today versus one from the 80s, you notice that the glass area on new cars seems to be about half of the older ones. New cars are in general harder to see out of. And why is this? Style, crash standards, or something else? Um, basically, yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, yeah, people feel, for whatever reason, people feel more secure when they are snuggled into this metal cocoon that they can't see out of. Um, Personally, it feels like a coffin to me. I love visibility, lots of windows, um, but it, and it also, uh, the higher the, the side, the metal comes up on the side, the, the easier it is to make it pass side impact. I'm assuming that's all correct. Yeah, I mean, ab absolutely. Um, you know, having having less glass area, more metal area, uh, gives you more structure that can absorb, especially you know, now that they have to, they have uh, side impact tests. You know, they they've got to crash the vehicle into a into a pole, you know, sideways. Uh, yeah. So th there's there's a lot of a lot of new um, crash tests that have been imposed over the last 30 years uh, that you know they have to protect the vehicle occupants and minimize the the uh, the energy is transferred to the vehicle occupants. So that's got to go somewhere else. That's got to go into the vehicle structure somewhere. Uh, and so that's that's one of the main drivers for uh, the reduced visibility. So that's why you have higher belt lines um, and you know less glass area, uh, and also you know thicker pillars. Right. Know, fortunately, you know in the last few years, probably you know, in the last four or five years, uh, as the, as the um, engineers have started to figure out how to work with uh, some new materials, some you know to better work with some of the high strength steels and aluminum and, and other materials, you know, they're starting to make some progress, you know, moving back in the opposite direction. Um, you know, so, you know, through the, through the last decade, you know, we saw especially the A pillars on a lot of cars getting really, really thick and giving you big, huge blind spots to the front, towards the front corners of the car. You know, we're starting to see that move back in the other direction. So some of the more recent models have slimmer A pillars now, again, so you're getting some better visibility to the front and sides. Um, you know, because they're, they're using new materials that can give them the strength they need 
um, without having to be really uh, huge and, and boxy. Um, you know, still got issues, especially to the back on a lot of cars. You know, a lot of a lot of modern cars, you know, have much higher deck lids um, than they than they have in the past. Part of that is for aerodynamics. Part of that is just uh, design and style. Um, and you know, of course, you know, on, on utilities, you know, even though you're sitting up higher, you know, that does that does tend to hurt your visibility, around, especially around the back half of the vehicle. Um, and so, one of the ways you're getting around that is with backup cameras. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons for having backup cameras on all the new cars. Yeah, which I I found myself every now and then like relying on the backup camera and then hating myself for it because I can back up with my mirrors, damn it. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I'm in this existential uh, place, I guess, where the the what I know to be a, a real driver and what apparently automakers want to sell is they're they're diverging and and I'm not not sure whether I should just jump into it. Um, I'll solve that. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> given, given the types of vehicles that we have available to us today, um, you know, the reality is, you know, no matter how, how well you use your mirrors, you know, and, uh, and, you know, having them set properly is, is also very important, especially your outside mirrors. Um, even, even if you use those correctly, there's still limitations on what you can see from those mirrors, especially, uh, you know, for example, when you're backing out of a parking space in a parking lot, it's, you know, when you've got SUVs on either side of you, it's going to, no matter what you're driving, it's going to be hard to see if somebody's coming down the aisle, you know, and your mirrors are not going to help you in that situation. And that's where uh, a backup camera with a nice wide angle view and also um, the uh, cross traffic alert systems that, you know, increasingly have on vehicles can be a huge help, uh, you know, to let you know, you know, so you can both, so you can see visually, you know, on the, the camera display, but also, you know, get alerts, you know, as you start to back up, you know, if some, if someone's driving down the aisle, you know, you'll, the, the radar sensors will let you know that, Hey, there's somebody there that you might not have seen. Um, and you know, you stop. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, both are important. It's, you know, it's, it's critical to, to use the visibility that you have, but also, you know, given the, the reality of the situation with the cars that we have today, the cars and trucks we have, you know, use the technology, you know, to augment that. Yeah. And that's just me being cranky, I suppose. Um, well, the other email we, Love right. I, of course, <laughs> the other email we got had, it was a multi-part email. Um, and we don't actually, it's about a lot of cars that I haven't really driven too many, if any of them. Um, but I certainly have opinions so we can, we can sling opinions with the best of them. So why don't we jump to that and then wrap the podcast and go eat Turkey tomorrow. Sure. <laughs> or, or, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, you know, eat your leftovers, right? Eat leftovers. Uh, right. Yeah. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, wrote asking, see, the first part was, uh, how do you like the Porsche 17, 718s with PDK? Uh, how about the 911 Porsche 911 with the PDK? Dan, have you driven any uh, recent Porsches with a PDK? I have driven Porsches with a PDK. Uh, the PDK is a good gearbox. I'm bored by it. Uh, even no matter how good it is because, uh, or how quick it is. I just, I, that kind of car, I just want to shift to myself. That's... I can't disagree with you. Um, you know, the PDK for those not familiar with Porsche's, uh, branding is it's a dual clutch transmission. Um, so it's an automatic transmission, um, that, uh, uses a, a fairly complex gear mechanism inside to, uh, uh, along with two clutches to, to shift gears. Um, and 
I haven't personally driven the the recent Porsches with the PDK, uh, but other recent vehicles I've driven with dual clutch transmissions, they've gotten a lot better. Uh, they're much smoother than they used to be, uh, and they shift. They can shift remarkably quickly. Yeah, it it does. It will shift very faster fast. than a human usually can. Right, but see, that's the that's to me like the capability doesn't matter. Like that's that's a spec sheet victory. Or if if you're no, if, I, and you know if you're if you're on a track going sure. for you know fast lap times. It, it's a it's a huge help. The point so PDK if you're on a track in a racing situation PDK is actually a, a quite an advantage because it can shift so quickly that it doesn't break the torque flow to the rear wheels. That that is like that's a, a that means you don't put the car out of shape in the middle of a corner. You can shift, which you're not really like it's not advised to shift in the middle of a corner, but sometimes you got to do it, and and PDK can do it um, without disrupting your traction because it doesn't really break the torque. Uh, whereas if you had a manual, you definitely like you, there's there's no way to not break torque. Um, so it has its advantages. But having said that, you know, like like you, Dan, I actually like to drive. You know, hey, right. To take control of the vehicle. You know, not necessarily. You know, if I'm commuting in traffic, you know, into downtown Detroit or any other city, but um, you know, when you know when the the road is wide open, I love to be able to take control and and manually shift and and work on you know that. That balance, you know, between um, moving the shifter around, working the clutch pedal, the brake pedal, and the accelerator, um, you know, I, 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 I enjoy that. Right, and I enjoy the challenge of trying to get everything just right. Right, and no plus minus button is going to do it. Like that's not a stand-in. Um, so th that's that. <laughs> and the 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 seven eighteen with the turbo engine probably is a lot more satisfying to drive, but I I feel like it it misses out on some of the. Uh, I don't want to say purity, but just some of the character that made the Boxster the Boxster, you know? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, now, now that I think of it, I actually did very briefly drive a 17, 718 Boxster uh, just a couple of weeks ago at a Borg Warner event. I mean, it was only for about 10 minutes um, and at relatively low speeds. But um, actually, yeah, now, now that I recall that, the, the PDK actually, you know, as automatic transmissions go, it's a fabulous gearbox. And I actually really like that four-cylinder, the flat four turbo that they have in there. It's a it's a wonderful little engine, uh, really torquey, and a lot of fun to drive. All right, so there we go. Answering that, one. what's the, what's the rest of his? Uh... Let's see. The next one, uh, Camaro ZL1 with the 10-speed automatic, um, and uh, that their GM is just starting to do some media drives with that. Neither of us have driven it yet. The 10-speed is the new. Uh, transmission that GM jointly developed with Ford um, and it's debuting uh, right about now on the 2017 Ford F-150s. Uh, it's also going into their Ford's new Super Duties. Uh, it'll be in the 2018 Mustangs. Uh, GM's going to be using it in a bunch of vehicles in their trucks and um, and other uh, rear-wheel drive applications uh, starting with the, the ZL1. Um, Neither of us have driven either anything with that transmission or the or the ZL1, so uh, it's hard to say. And for that matter, I haven't even driven um, the sixth generation Camaro yet. I'm still waiting to get into one of those. So uh, I don't know about you, but yeah, <laughs> don't really have yeah. much, much else to offer on that one. No, and then we were talking earlier. Uh, GM cars are thin on the ground up here for the New England media fleet. So yeah, I haven't driven driven any of those. Uh, the last time I drove a 10-speed, it had Columbia on the. Uh, stem and it was it was a bicycle yeah um so best pony car hellcat challenger um 
Mustang GT350R or Camaro ZL1. Um, you know, it depends on depends on what you're looking for. I think the uh, GT350R absolutely sounds the best. Um, the um, the Hellcat is probably going to get you down the quarter mile the fastest. Um, ZL1 is probably the lightest. You know, it'd be a, be a toss up, probably a tough toss up between the the GT350 or the ZL1. I think uh, for a car to really drive on the road. The uh, GT350R does have the advantage of uh, being a manual transmission only, uh, whereas I'm not sure if they're even offering an, a manual on the new ZL1, are they? Do you know, Dan? I do not know, but I can look at the Googles real quick. My thought was that the ZL1 is possibly the better all-around performer. Um, just, you know, that, that latest generation of Camaro just has turned out fantastically well in terms of just putting up the numbers and being well-rounded. Um, but the, the Mustang is no slouch either. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the, you know, the, the visceral experience of that flat plan crank V8 and the GT 350 is just, oh, there's nothing like it. I mean, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, you know, about electric Ferraris and whether that's something that should really exist. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the only, all, all the excuse you need, you know, to justify an internal combustion engine is the sound of a flat plane crank V8. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so it does, it does look like the uh, ZL1 is available with a six speed manual or a 10 speed automatic. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I like the Camaro. Um, I also like the Mustang. <laughs> yeah. so, and I, I honestly like for me that you know? yeah those are those are the two ones like those are the ones that are going to really be in the hunt performance wise the the Hellcat is only in the in the sort of competition because it has such crushing power uh, and like, it's a good handling car but it's a big car it doesn't have yeah, the I mean, precision it's size it's, yeah. it's su surprisingly nimble for its size but. Yeah, I mean, I would I would tend to go with one of the two smaller ones. Yeah, I, I mean, if I unless you're drag racing. Well, that or if if I had to drive to L.A. from here today, or like you, if I had to drive to Pittsburgh, yeah. <laughs> I would absolutely not turn down a Hellcat. That would be one of my top choices because it's got plenty of power for whenever you need it, and it's it's big enough big. to be comfortable. Yeah, and it's it still handles decently well. Like I I really like the Challenger, but man, that car is it's old, it's big, it's not efficient. Um, where the the Mustang for sure and the Camaro have become much less pony cars and and more like true sports coupes. Like they are, they are better performers than they've ever been, and they are on dedicated platforms now that they don't share with some kind of economy car. You know, like for the Mustang's life up until, well, I mean, I, I guess up until the last generation, yeah. Um, it was you know it was Falcon. Pinto, <laughs> and, Fairmont. Um, and Fairmont, uh, and then the SN95, which was basically Fairmont with some more welds, <laughs> and uh, and then then the S197, that was really the the first sort of dedicated Mustang platform. But even that used a lot of pieces from other parts bin stuff to to make the cost savings. So really, you know, now it's it's evolved past the point where it's an economy car and drag and the, the Camaro is the same thing. The Camaro, while it shares its platform with other vehicles, they're all sort of high performers. Cadillac. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, it, share, it shares its platform with Cadillacs. So that's, right. that's not a bad thing. Right. So, um, those are the cars that are going to really be great all around performers. The Hellcat's really fun, but it's kind of a, it's, a, it's behind the, those two. So, um, 
Okay, ZL1 or ZL, Z06? Oh, man. Or, or, must, or uh, Corvette. Corvette. Because, I mean, why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're going to do that, you yeah, might as well go all the way. Yeah. And, and at least you can see out of the back of a Corvette, which, you know, for all the improvements on the latest generation Camaro, the visibility is still terrible. That's crazy that you're saying that the visibility out of a Corvette is better than a Camaro. That's just yeah. not right. I know. It's plain not right. It doesn't seem like it should be. No. But, but it is. Um, so, yeah, that's does – that, does that cover all of it? Is that all his uh, questions? Let's see. Any old car discussion on the rampant value of the 996-911? Uh, sure, the uh, – The 996? Oh, that's the last air-cooled, right? Um, no, that's the first no, – I think that was the, the, that was the – the first, uh, like the mid nineties, mid nineties to, uh, early 2000s. Well, the only, yeah. So those, if that's the first, uh, yeah, that's, that's the nine, nine, six, right. They, when they went from the old bodies. So the last, they actually, I think they went air cooled in the nine, nine, three, which was still like the original body style. The nine, nine, three had, uh, the turbo had water cooled heads, um, of that one. The nine, nine, six was the first water cooled nine, 11. It shared a lot with the Boxster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, and people hated them, but they're still 911s, and while the cost-cutting, you can really see the cost-cutting in them, uh, they're rising in value because they're affordable and they're still a 911. <laughs> so that's like, if you want a 911, that's where you go, because the, the current ones are too expensive, the vintage ones are way too expensive. Um, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're basically, that's probably right now the most affordable generation of 911. Yeah, uh, they're no Super Carrera, but... Uh, yeah, I mean that's do worse though. Yeah, it's still gonna be a real fun car, and you can find one that's well kept. You know, it's like a it's like a Corvette in that sense. You can find one that's been very well kept for a good price, and as it's gonna deliver lots of driving thrills. Yep. So that's my thought on that. Go buy one. Works for me. <laughs> All right, I think we've done it. I think we have uh, killed another podcast as we go to kill a uh, holiday jet. That just plain didn't work. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Anyway, okay, just a, a few reminders. Uh, you can uh, find the podcast at wheelbearings.media. Uh, you can find links to subscribe in uh, whatever uh, whatever um, app of choice you want to use, whether it's iTunes or Pocket Casts or any other podcatcher app. Um, you can contact us there. Uh, send us an email. Send us your comments and questions. Uh, you know, um, give us a review in iTunes uh, if you're so inclined. Um, what else? Uh, you are on, we're on Twitter now, uh, at wheelbearingscast, W H L B R N G S cast. Right. No, no vowels. Right. <laughs> Modern internet, uh, format, wheelbearingscast with no vowels. Right. That's the kids, the cool kids do that. Um, so yeah, we're there on Twitter now and, uh, reach out to us in one of those channels. We're happy to, uh, do your, your supercar shootouts or, um, <laughs> answer actual questions about, you know, visibility or, or whatever else is on your mind. So, uh, until next time, we'll see everybody until next time. Yeah. See ya. All right. Holiday. Yeah, you too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.